You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Good morning, welcome to the show. Thanks for listening. It is Friday, June the 17th, the fourth day of Royal Ascot. And whilst temperatures are forecast to soar to the point where the dress code, yes, the dress code has been relaxed at Royal Ascot. And men can even take their ties off. I've never known that. It's actually a cooler morning now than it has been at any time I've been podcasting this week. I'm very pleased to welcome Lydia Hislop to the show this Friday morning. And what drama again on Gold Cup Day. The Tories' day of horrors. First of all, Stradivarius, then the saga continued and then reached for the moon. Did anything but in the last hundred yards. The only thing that could have made it worse, I suppose, was seeing Ryan Moore win the last race for the Queen on tactical. But that horse suffered a a terrible run as well. So that wasn't to be. Uh, Lydia... Were they right, do you think, to really get after the Tory after the race? John Gosden saying that a horse should have been ridden much handier. The quote was, I was a bit surprised from having been in the box seat that we dropped back so far. I wish we'd been a little handier and not had to go through a wall of horses. Or is the Tory right when he says Stradivarius went out fighting? He owes nothing. You have to pass the baton on to the younger ones. He's done his bit. He's been a star. What do you think? A bit of both. In this instance, I think I lean more towards the John Gosden analysis because Stradivarius bounced out of the stalls. He was in a perfectly prominent position and uh, Frankie Dettori allowed him to drop back in the field to mid-division. And then suddenly we're in a position very reminiscent of last year where he is basically boxed in on the inside rail with uh, Kiprios man-marking him initially, but also just in front of him, Princess Zoe, and just behind him, Mojo Star. And um, between the the three of them, those um, key players in the race, all of whom you know held chances in the race, and, and two of them um, finished first and second, meant that they were always keeping Stradivarius um, in a position that wasn't helpful to uh, Frankie Dettori. And, and yeah, I think I think it was there was some passivity at the start of the race, which resulted in the horse being in the wrong position, particularly the way that the race panned out. Now, is he not the star of previous years? I think that would be self-evident to anyone who has been watching the horse this season and last season. However, he's still operating at a, at a very high level. You know, it could have it could have been close with better position with a clearing, clearer run. So yeah, I'm afraid I'm, I'm leaning more towards John Gosling. How about you? Well, I just wonder whether um, Gosling, if he had his time again, would would have nudged Frankie as, as as close as he did to the wheels of the bus before Bjorn Nielsen pushed him right under it, really. <laughs> I, 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 I sort of have a bit of sympathy with, with Frankie Dottori here. Yes, he was quite far back. And, and yes, there was a ring of inevitability about it when he was surrounded by Moore and, and then Ross Aran. I think both of whom gave their horses great rides because they knew they needed to get first run on Dottori off mm. that pedestrian part of, of mid-race. But I think there is there is something in Dottori's own testimony, having ridden the horse so many times, that he feels that he's given his all and that he's not able to give quite what he used to be able to give. And I'd, I'd be inclined to take that on trust rather than to consider that he's using that as an excuse for his own, for his own shortcomings. And I, 
I wonder whether we gave or we give enough credit uh, to Dottori's own experience and his ability to, to ride a horse like this on his instincts, really. And I guess that's what's made him the rider he's been over the years. Yeah, I, I mean, I, 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 as I said at the start, I do feel there is, there is something to Frankie Dottori's argument. I just think on this occasion, there's more to John Gosden's. Um, Tadaveris is an eight-year-old entire horse. Uh, Frankie Dottori had to get off him and walk into the start. And, yeah. Uh, he was asked about by um, Luke Harvey for ITV Racing, you know, is, should we be worried about this? And Frankie Story said, no, he does this at home. This is perfectly, um, perfectly normal. I mean, what he brings to Stradivarius definitely shouldn't be underestimated. However, um, I do feel here that on the face of things that he has um, taken away from Stradivarius chance, as well as bringing some positives as well. Um, you know, it, it's complicated. It would have, I think it would have been close, but we are talking about an eight-year-old who's not as good as it was against a rising star in Kiprios and Mojo Star now um, in, amongst the, the staying generation who are both half his age. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not completely dismissing what Frankie Dottori had to say. Um, I just feel that there was more weight to John Gosden's argument. And as for, I, I mean, I don't know, it's difficult, isn't it, talking about team members in public and, and what's happened. I mean, clearly, immediately after the race, John Gosden and Bjorn Nilsson would be bitterly disappointed. They're looking at the end of Stradivarius's career. I mean, the plan is to go on to the Goodwood Cup. And they were wanting him to at least have a fair chance of showing what he's got these days at the, at the age of eight. And I think in, in the immediate aftermath, memories of the previous year, and uh, just watching what, what had happened. You know, you're never going to be yeah. um, completely at your best in that, complete, in that scenario. And, and quite often, members of the public, the media, want people to be more honest than, about how they feel about, about something True. like that. And, and, then we, and then we complain, you know, <laughs> when they are. The, the, interesting, the interesting thing is, though, I think it's something particular about their relationship that because Gosden's given him quite a bit of rope down the years and knows that that's the best way to handle him and it's meant that they've had two incredibly fruitful you know, relationships, that he then he sort of probably feels more you know, freedom to, to frap him down when he feels he needs that as well. You know, it's, it's, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's kind of a curious relationship, isn't it? And one that, one that sort of doesn't conform to, to relationships that he might have with other jockeys who he normally sort of robustly defends, even if they've made an app absolute horlicks or something well it's it's about balance of power here isn't it and usually jockeys have less power certainly than i think they're perceived to have but vis-a-vis a trainer and an owner because the latter two are employers and a jockey in this situation is an employee so again people quite often um comment that they wish that jockeys would be more frank or more honest but you know they have to bear in mind you know where they sit in this particular dynamic some jockeys get to transcend that dynamic there aren't many it can happen if you have a particularly good relationship with a trainer it can happen if through longevity or it can happen through um where your star is in the firmament and you'll think of fragatory along those lines um you would think about ruby walsh along those lines and tony mccoy along those lines just to, to someone to instantly spring to mind and that whereas john gosden generally would have you know, in the scheme of things, in the dynamic, more power than most jockeys he talks to. Frankie Dottori in that way is partly an exception. And also, is it 
you know, we think about Emily Upjohn in the Oaks. Now, clearly, things went very wrong at the start in the stalls when she lost her footing. However, there was a decision to be made at the top of the straight. And some analysts feel, and I think there's some merit to it, that uh, Frankie de Tory moved, moved a bit too precipitately or wasn't, uh, and or wasn't aware of what was going on, on on the inside. So, you know, is that in the mind? Is, is, there, a, is there any element of cumulative effect, do you think? Well, quite, quite possibly. And they're going through a frustrating spell, the Sable, aren't they? And that's only been exacerbated by the defeats of, of Saga and Reach for the Moon on a day when, you know, they were aching to have a winner in, in the Royal Colours. I, I think Reach for the Moon, I don't know what to make of him. What did you make of him? Uh, what did I make of him? I felt that... Um... Or did we, have we just been overrating him? I no, I mean, I, I mean, I, I remain very positive about my Prospero. However, I think the St James's Palace Stakes, and he's the horse, of course, who beat Reach for the Moon at Sandown mm. last time out. Um, uh, and I, I feel after the St James's Palace Stakes, we saw a horse there that clearly needs ten furlongs to be at his best. So then you're looking at Reach for the Moon and, and asking what he is, and, and you know, Claymore. You, he, Adam Kirby controlled that race from the front. This is a horse that's finished second to Native Trail on just his second career start um, in the Craven back in April. You know, was the draw the way the race panned out didn't really work work for them in the um, French Guineas, and has come and, and won the Hampton Court with Adam Kirby dictating from the front. And I think Reach for the Moon could never quite get on terms. I think he's run pretty well but he's not the superstar perhaps that everybody hoped that yeah. he would be but he's a very very good horse and he might yet improve up in trip let's talk about up in trip maybe even down in trip maybe he's a miler who you knows think down in trip? well i mean <laughs> he did flatten out at the end i agree it, it depends on on what you think that is on how there's he it. off I feel there's a difference of opinion in the, within the camp there as well, but that, that's, maybe one, that's maybe one for another day. All I'd say is if it's down in trip, then um, I, think, I think if we're thinking he's a very good horse, it's up in trip. If yeah. we think he's down in trip, he's a quite good horse. Yeah, that's a very good way of putting it. Now, can, can he turn it all round today on Inspiral? It's a, it's a big ask, isn't it? Well, John or is it? I mean, it, it shouldn't be. I mean, she had that touch of brilliance. She looked clearly the dominant British filly at the end of her two-year-old season. But again, John Gosling, I mean, he, this is uh, what, what he would normally do. He has warned that, uh, you know, she has obviously had a, a difficult spring. This is the soonest that he could possibly have got her to the race course. And therefore, she is potentially vulnerable to horses who, A, have not only got their seasons rolling already and so are battle-hardened in that kind of way but you know might have improved faster and what about the commonwealth cup do you like one in there um i think the commonwealth cup is is really competitive it's fascinating to see um last year's norfolk um, stakes winner perfect power um coming back and uh, and dropping in trip which i think will be far more suitable target for him there's a lot of sort of much of a muchness form isn't there sort of the eras form from um, Newbury last time in which he finished a, what appears like an unfortunate second behind Tiber Flow but also you know lightly raced horses like Sam Maximus and Risk in behind um, there are lots of sort of race of um, form lines to pan out I don't I don't have a strong opinion I think I suppose 
as I was working through the form and again and again and again, I kept thinking like, am I just overlooking the obvious, which is, which is perfect power. I have to say, I was a big fan of Twilight Jet at the end of last season and I'm impressed the way, he, he had the substance of a horse that looked as though he would train on to three and his seasonal debut success suggested that that has been the case. It's also interesting to see Zane Claudette back, by the way, uh, making her belated seasonal debut. Um, she, of course, has won over the course and distance in the Princess Margaret Stakes and went on to win the Lowther. So, I mean, she was a, a pretty talented um, two-year-old filly before flopping in the Jubilee Park. Right, ask it Friday. Time for a quick Whirlpool update with Jamie Hart. Jamie, how was yesterday for you and Dottori's Day of Doom? Big, big, big day yesterday again. Um, if you're playing into the Whirlpool through the tote, five out of seven beat the SP, um, and obviously we match on the others. Interestingly, Kiprios is one of them. You'd expect that. Really popular. A Ryan Moore and the Coolmore kind of team for, to be well back in Asia. But the Riddler was one that paid under. It was 50 to 1. It, normally, 50 to 1 chance will pay about 68 quid. And then, of course, you look at it and it was number eight. So the Riddler only paid 47. Of course, you make, make that up to 51. But watch out for the number eights. Clearly, they, they pay under. But the uh, Exacta and the Trifecta beat the forecast and Tricast in every race yesterday. Uh, and that's what people have been betting and, and winning on in the betting competition as well. Uh, going to tomorrow, I really believe that the biggest uh, turnover race of World Pool history could be the Platinum Jubilee Stakes and beat the Derby, just because of the international uh, makeup of it. We've got Home Affairs coming in there from Australia, Campanelle from America, Artorias owned by the China Horse Club. Because we've got Creative Force and all that from the Godolphin. I think I think that if that doesn't break all records, I'll be very surprised. So looking forward to the Platinum Jubilee Stakes for a big record tomorrow. Well, there have been many fascinating ownership journeys this week at Ascot, but none more perhaps than that experienced by Johnny Allison, who was an integral part of the syndicate that owned the Coventry Stakes winner Brad Sell before selling him before the race. Um, I guess a big payout, but slightly heartbreaking not to have your Royal Ascot winner, particularly for a, a syndicate, two of whom had never owned a racehorse before. But then, lo and behold, the 6.10 the following day, the Kensington Palace stakes up pops 40 to one shot rising star co-owned by guess who? Yes, Johnny Allison, who's with me now. Funny old game, Johnny. Yeah, well, I mean, I've said that's reaching a few times in the last few days. You can probably imagine why. I mean, look, it was fantastic to see Bradfield win. I mean, Tom Biggs and Blanford and Archie did an amazing job with him. And he cost 47k and there he is. Popping up at Ascot a few days later. Look, I was there when he won at York, so I was delighted to be there. That was an amazing day when just that was sort of what what on earth just happened there kind of thing. Um, and look, you know, the whole point of the syndicate is three horses. So Tom and Archie set it up, and the idea was that we'd buy breezes, and if they did well, you'd sell. And um, we did do well and sell. Obviously, there's a, a you know I've been following racing for a long time, so there's a. a, a part of me that is slightly gutted um, just about what he's doing but you know obviously that's great for the new connections and you know, that, that's that's life what can you do but um, yeah for them to have the sort of I, I went to ask a slightly sort of heavier footed than normal on Wednesday even with a run and then you know there we go look what happens so as I said that's that's racing and were you thinking yeah you know I've been in this game a little while and I, I'm never going to have a, another another Royal Ascot winner I'm never going to have a an Ascot winner after that. Yeah, well, exactly. I, I, I think I said um, a quick moment on TV that I thought that was our day, and then Wednesday was our day. So, 
as I was saying, and you know, that was great. I mean, she was a rising star, wasn't expensive either. I think she was a 14, 15K buyback. And I've been with Marco and Lucy for, for many years, so it's, it's great that, that we could have a winner with them and really delighted for them too. And you know, again, there's a, a few sort of newer people into racing in that syndicate as well as some of his longer term owners. So that's a great little story itself. We know she again is the first horse in that syndicate. So um, what can I say? She was pulled up on her first ever run as well, so it always shows you. We actually thought she was going to do pretty well. She was four to one, I think second favourite. She was pulled up, so there was a what happened there moment as well, so it just shows you, you never know what's around the corner. Yeah, when you go on pulled up on the flat a first time out, you really don't think there's much of a way back from that, but there you are. You are now a Royal Ascot winner, Johnny Allison. What an amazing week for you. Yeah, look, it's, it's been outstanding, as I said. I mean, I, um, I don't have many horses, and um, to have this as an outcome is just unbelievable, really, for a small owner like me and, and the other guys in the syndicate. As I said, you know, in, in Bradsell, a couple of people there have never owned a flat horse before. I have, I have told them it doesn't normally go like this. Hopefully, hopefully they realise that. <laughs> All right, Lydia is back with me. Now, Lydia, when is dangerous riding not dangerous riding? And when are we going to call dangerous riding dangerous riding and therefore disqualify horses who wipe out half the field? I refer, of course, to uh, Paul Hannigan on the Riddler in yesterday's uh, Norfolk Stakes. Yes. Um, I mean, I, I, didn't, I didn't feel it was dangerous riding in terms of the way that the BHA would categorise it. However, did I think that the riding is potentially dangerous and the way in which riders are seem to feel that they can allow such a pronounced and prolonged drift um, uh, that the uh, reward for doing that vastly outweighs the risk. Do I think that that cumulatively, cumulatively leads to a dangerous situation? Yes, absolutely I do. Um, I felt, I mean, for me, the leap is between careless and improper riding. And, um, you know, with dangerous riding, the strict BHA rules, it's along the lines of rider intentionally makes contact with another horse, rider intentionally interferes with another horse, um, rider causes serious interference as a result of steering a course by carrying out a manoeuvre. There's, there's intent there, uh, you know, and a high level of, uh, of intent that, that the stewards have to find. Then with a, improper riding, there's a, an emphasis on the word manoeuvre, whereas with careless riding, and I think this is why we fall down between careless riding and improper riding. With careless riding here, there is an absence of something, isn't there? Rather than actually an, an intent or a, an, an active manoeuvre, there is an absence of keeping your horse straight, an absence of, of straightening. In Paul Hannigan's um, particular case, uh, taking his hand off the right, right rein on a horse who had already shown evidence of beginning to shift to his left, and then using his whip three times as the horse shifts at least six horse widths across to his left um, and only straightening after the last bit of most serious interference has taken place when he um, at least brushes with Brave Nation, who might have rallied into a place. He's also checked the rallying Crispy Cat, who, by the way, has also already been, been switched and had to come around horses to make his challenge. And he might well have been denied second place. But I think uh, for me, it, it's, it's that leap between um, careless and improper that needs, needs some addressing. Because for me, because nothing substantial happens in terms of penalty to riders who allow a prolonged drift like this a cynical drift like this because nothing happens i think that that um 
absence of doing something is almost is a maneuver because you can you know it's coming and uh you know there are, there are you, you can see uh riders use playing the advantage yeah. essentially it is a prolonged professional foul and and, it, and it's one thing if you're just drifting gently into somebody's path causing them to switch course but when you're drifting that dramatically that exaggeratedly and coming across the course so horses that you're not clear of are having to snatch right off heels then potentially the consequences of your actions are quite grave and i think that's where people certainly watching abroad with the whirlpool betting and i'm broadcasting into america people are saying hang on a minute how can that stay up how can you get away with that I think they are in America, aren't they? In North America. I'm, I'm not sure. Kong, I'd say Hong Kong as well, maybe. I mean, in, in terms, certainly in terms of the punishments and penalties. Yeah, that, I think that's where, where I would be coming down on. I mean, I, I actually prefer, and I realise that this is sort of an unfashionable view at the moment, but I prefer our interference rules in terms of um, demotion and horses keeping the race. Um, I, I prefer the emphasis on um, uh, the horse who crosses the line first, into some degree being given the benefit of the doubt, because I think uh, races should be decided on the race course. And I also think that you tend to see, um, and this is a generalisation, that races are do find out hierarchy and that interference, not always, but mostly, um, is, is shown to be um, a footnote rather than anything that, that is, is fundamental. However, that is different from how you then deal with riders who act with impunity in terms of allowing their horses to drift and do not value the safety of their opponents, the riders and the opponent opposing horses as well. And I think that is um, clear here. And there was a feeling, uh, there's been a growing feeling in the weighing room that, that that has been the case. And this would be a particularly bad example of it. And I'd also sort of say, I mean, Paul Hannigan was saying afterwards that he thought he was sufficiently clear. I, I just can't imagine how, how he, he thought that um, in that, he, you know, he did brush against, against Brave Nation. And also he's gone so far across. As I said, the horse had already started edging to his left or showing an inclination to go to his left, even before he then picked up his stick, took his hand off the right hand rein, picked up the stick in, in, that, in that hand and hit the horse uh, three times uh, before he actually straightened it. So he must have been aware of that drifting. And afterwards, he, ref he said on Sky Sports Racing that he might earn a little holiday. Uh, you know, I think this is another aspect of this. Uh, we've got to stop referring to suspensions for um, insufficiently professional riding as holidays. holidays. <laughs> they're, not, they're not holidays. They are penalties for inferior riding. That's what they are. Yeah, if you choose to take a holiday while you're banned, then that's entirely up to you, as long as it's um, not during a pandemic and it's not a redless country. I do think... <laughs> well, quite. I, I do think that this, this has to be addressed um, because this absence of doing something adds up essentially to a manoeuvre. You know, I'm talking here in terms of the BHA's guidelines and, and what they look at. Even within careless riding, I'm surprised they only went 10 days. They could have got up to 14 days. And if you look at the notes penalty guidance, they have to think about the loss of opportunity to challenge for prize money. 
they've got to think about the loss of prize money, and this, you know, clearly applies to, to horses in behind, particularly to crispy cats. And the penalty should increase when the horse hangs or drift for a long period, when it ought to have been obvious that uncorrected interference would result. So, I mean, even with the parameters of careless riding, there was option to go four days higher. But as I said, I feel that the problem here is between careless and improper in the BHA's terms and that an absence of, um, uh, uh, the absence of correction in, is, is these days amounting to an, a manoeuvre and that it's the wording and the application that needs to be um, addressed, I think. Well, most days this week, I've been catching up with James Willoughby for a quick rankings update. So you're pretty familiar with where everything stands, but uh, I wanted to have our traditional Friday slot as well. And, and James, I think we've chosen a, a good day to regroup and, and a good day upon which to reflect on some of the, the nuttiness of, uh, of, of what went on yesterday. But let, let's start with today and, and the coronation stakes. Yeah, this is a really inter interesting contest from an international perspective because it brings together form lines from Ireland, England, France, and indeed America. And it's that latter uh, continent I want to focus on because I think Spenderella on our rankings is a little bit underrated. This is Graham Motion's filly uh, by Cara Conti. And um, I'll get onto the reasons why in a minute, but she's won two graded stakes pretty fluently, uh, showing plenty of, of speed. She'll have to relax a little bit. But these are the leading rankings. In spiral on last year's uh, form, when she won the May Hill and the Phillies Mile, is one, was, was 102. Of course, she doesn't qualify at the moment, having been off the track. Then it's Cache, the 1,000 guineas winner here, at 125. But the next filly in is Spenderella, head of the French guineas winner, Mangustine. The computer thinks that Cache was below her best somewhat uh, in France. And... What's interesting about Spenderella, I think, is first that Graham Motion needs no introduction on these shores to anyone taking an international outlook. He really is a, a top-notch trainer. But it's the pedigree of this field that, in, uh, that interests me, Nick, because one of my um, ways of um, finding winners internationally is to look for anything that's been produced by a Judmont family. And this filly, Spenderella, has, if you go back a few generations, it, it really is quite a nice family. And... Um, I think she's got the pedigree, the run style, and the connections, and most importantly of all, the rankings to prove that at 10 to 1, she should be competitive. The rankings can't say that she's going to win, but she's right up there, I think, internationally. I think she's underrated with a, a world world's best racehorse ratings of just 107. We make her much better than that. That, that interests me, because normally when you've got a, a horse who has had relatively few runs and you're not quite sure whether they're they're good or not the the trc computer will not necessarily err on the side of caution but want to yeah. see more evidence it obviously thinks that in in three starts and three wins it's seen enough evidence to know that she's a good horse yeah well i think that they're quite well connected the three-year-old fillies in america actually they're not outstanding group and, and you know let, let's get this in perspective we have a ranked only um in the top 150 in the world. Um, so it's not like we're saying that she's an elite horse, but equally, her rivals today have got something to prove. I think the British and Irish three-year-old Billy's form is fairly ordinary. And in spiral, well, for my money, there was a lot of bluster yesterday after the Gold Cup. But so far, you know, I, I think John Gorston's horses probably could take a step forward from where they are at this meeting. I fully expect uh, John to have, and Thady for that matter, to have, much better kind of July, August. And in spiral, returning 
Well, it's a bit like reaching the moon yesterday. Is she going to be at her best for this? Well, he, he, certainly the trainer's capable of having a right there. Um, but there are doubts. Yeah, I suppose the difference between Inspire and Reach for the Moon is that yeah, the gloss had rather gone off some of Reach for the Moon's two-year-old form, even though he was fully entitled to win yesterday. Whereas mm. the gloss hasn't really gone off in Spiral's two-year-old form, has it? It, it hasn't, but it, it is a bit incestuous in, in, a, in as much as, yes, Prosperous Voyage has gone on to represent the Phillies Mile form well in the English 1,000 guineas. And, but, you know, according to our, our rankings, it, it, it is all a bit uncertain as to where this fits in globally. I think that's what we kind of going to find out today, really, is, is that where we stand with some of the form lines from France, Ireland and America. It's going to be a fascinating race, as indeed the entire week has been. I mentioned the nuttiness of yesterday. What did the, the Gold Cup tell you? Uh, I'm not ready to buy into this being a brand new generation of stairs. I thought it was a really weak race. I thought that... Um, next year's Gold Cup could be a lot better than this year's Gold Cup. And I thought that um, whilst a lot of the focus was on Frankie de Torre's ride, uh, riding tactics, I, I, I don't know. I, I think the old boys basically had it. Um, and, you know, he doesn't have the fire that he once had in his belly, completely understandably. His focus probably is on mares rather than winning uh, group ones. And take him away, I've sent him away. The rest of the field had doubts over them. So it'll be interesting to see where the rankings computer puts the winner um, when we uh, produce our new rankings on Monday. It has taken me until Friday to pin down the resident milliner to the Nick Luck Daily podcast, Lisa Tan, because this is your busiest week of the year. How are you holding up? Oh, that's a very loaded question, I think, Nick, <laughs> to be honest. I'm pretty tired. I will give you that. Every night I've said I might try and get more than five hours of sleep, uh, and it hasn't quite panned out. Actually, no, it did. Not until last night. Last night I got six, so that was that was lovely. Um, still not feeling fresh as a daisy for today, but it's the last day that I'll be here, so I'm looking forward to it. Now, this, this time last year, we were far from enthused, Lisa, about what people were doing with a kind of scaled back, paired back Royal Ascot. Given we're all opened up again, have people gone in with the gusto that you'd hoped? Yes, absolutely. That's been the really good news is that everyone has been really preparing hard and long uh, for this year's Royal Ascot. So Tuesday and Wednesday saw some really incredible outfits, lots and lots of colour, which I love, uh, especially bright pinks. Yellow has been very popular this year. The one colour that has not been popular this year is black. And I've had clients come to me saying, can I wear black? Should I wear black? Maybe I don't want to wear black. And they've been avoiding that and going for something bright and colourful instead. So colour is the is the theme this year. And what about from your perspective with the with the hats? What's the what's the style? Is it big, small? A good question. It's a bit of both, actually. Uh, we've been seeing some bigger styles, which obviously has been great for the weather that we've been having over the last couple of days. A big brim has been a little bit of a necessity if you're sitting in the garden. Today, I think especially you want to wear something bigger rather than smaller because you'll need the shade. Uh, but otherwise, the headband, the wide padded headbands that we've been seeing in the last few years, they're still very popular as well, mainly because they're such an easy-to-wear style. And when you're greeting people all day, it can be quite hard when you're wearing a big brim. So that's a very popular choice. 
choice as well. Tell me a little bit about um, who you think has has really rocked it in the style stakes this week. There, there is actually, I was thinking about this last night, there is an unsung hero of Royal Ascot each year who probably doesn't get the credit she deserves. I mean, she does her, what her actual job is, in which she's a senior PR at Royal Ascot. Uh, Alex Bertram, I don't know if you know her. I do, I know Alex well. There we go. So Alex is actually partly responsible for putting together the uh, Fennec and Royal Ascot Millinery Collective, of which I'm a part of this year. And uh, she does a phenomenal job across all sorts of aspects of Royal Ascot, including the fashion. And she has really smashed it out of the park this year with what she's been wearing. Each day she's actually been wearing a piece from the collective, which I might add are not necessarily easy pieces to wear like they are big they are showy they are uh, eye-catching they are attention grabbing and she's paired it beautifully with her outfits and just looked absolutely stunning and have you seen any shockers not expecting you to name them yeah <laughs> i'm not even gonna lie i have i've seen some shockers and i think a lot of them came out yesterday uh i was having a chat with someone and we were saying it almost borders on fancy dress at times which is a bit of a shame obviously people do want to get some attention when we haven't really had a crowd for the last couple of years and you know there's always the people that want to be in daily mail um <laughs> i am in daily mail a lot and i'm not necessarily courting that attention um but there are the ones who sort of go all out for a particular reason and that is just to get the headlines so i would advise maybe you know a great interesting hat is one thing but uh something that's enormous and you can't hold on your head and weighs a million tons and looks like it might have been made in craft school is is quite another beautiful stuff right what about what about finding the winners for us today lisa because you are you are way more expert in this game than anyone would realize (laughs) on tuesday i was taking the mantle of top punter in our group i would take that Uh, i've been all over nature strip for months now i actually managed to get him at eight to one which some of my friends were very impressed with so i'm a little bit gutted they're not backing him up tomorrow to be honest but i've been hearing Home Affairs is definitely the one to go for. Uh, obviously, seeing what Nature Strip had done and knowing that Home Affairs has beaten him this season in Australia as well, uh, it, I think it'll be very, very hard to go past. But as far as today goes, I'm very interested just to sit back and watch the coronation because the fillies in that field are phenomenal. And I really don't know which way it will go. I don't know if Inspiral can bounce back and, you know, recapture the form that she had last year. You've got other incredible horses in there as well. Um, you know, the Irish form's coming over, the French form's coming over, everyone's meeting there. And for me, this might actually be the race of the week. Oh, Lisa, great to talk to you. Have a great couple of days. Thank you. You too, Nick. Well, it's just over a year since Howden the well-known insurance company signed a five-year deal with Ascot Racecourse, establishing them as an official partner. Uh, this, of course, then the first year as a partner, seeing Royal Ascot in its in its full splendour with the Jubilee celebrations, international attendance and five days of top-level racing. Um, David Howden is absolutely passionate about racing and equestrianism. He's an owner-breeder. He's got runners today. He's the founder of Cornbury Horse Trials and is, is getting really stuck into equestrian disciplines of all kind and is is with me now david how's this week been for you seeing ask it in all its glory well i think it's really great because obviously this is our, our second year of our our partnership with Asker, but obviously last year whilst it was great to be there and we were all excited in you know in covid to be uh, enjoying racing this year because it's really in its full splendor particularly in this sort of a uh, wonderful jubilee year i mean there is really no nowhere finer and Ascot and of course we've always got this uh, pretty glorious weather so that along with the great racing it, 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 it's, it's been a, a great week so far Nick. 
And, and clearly, to, to enter into a partnership like this is a, a pretty major undertaking with a massive entity like Asker. What, what, what are you hoping to achieve from it? Well, you know, for us, there are, there are, there are a number of things. But first and foremost, you know, um, as a business, we're, we're very keen to support all, 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 all sports in, in the UK. And, and to us, you know, uh, racing is absolutely, uh, you know, pinnacle in that. And Ascot is, is, you know, the best of the best in racing in the UK. So for us to be, you know, partner with Ascot, uh, supporting uh, a sport that, you know, I love personally as well. Uh, I, I think it's a really good association for us. And I, I think, you know, in a way, we're a very proud um, British company, but with very international roots. We're operating 45 countries. And that fits very well with Ascot as well, which uh, I think, as I say, is, is a brilliant uh, 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 for racing in the UK, but also has international exposure. And so it's a great partnership for us. Uh, David, just um, looking ahead to your three runners that you're involved with this afternoon, how how hopeful are you of them? <laughs> well, they're all they're all relatively outsiders. I got I got three: Sydney Arms, Chelsea, and the or, or, Albany, and then uh, I've got uh, my lovely horse Hierarchy in the Commonwealth, and uh, uh, a great horse Wilderness Girl in in, in, in Sandringham. Um, let's see. You you you've got to pay partake to win um, I, I think uh, you know Commonwealth Cups Group 1 Hierarchy did very well last year he hasn't grown on so much he's quite a small horse but then uh, you know there have been some great ones like Hyperion in the past where small horses did well so so let's see that and Wilderness Girl hasn't run since last year um, uh, so we'll see and City um, Chelsea well she came out and won a nice maiden at Newbury first time out you know, quite, quite optimistic, but let's see. It's going to be going to be a fun day for me. I my first runners this weekend at Royal Ascot. It's fine that thing. They all sort of a, like London buses all, all, all come together. Well, each week it's always a pleasure to catch up on the goings on at Racing Welfare, supporting racing's workforce and helping raise as much money as possible. And one of Racing Welfare's staunchest and most important supporters at the moment is nine-year-old Freya Thackeray from Ripon, North Yorkshire, who joins me now. Uh, Freya, you've already been incredibly busy. In fact, I could almost describe you as a Racing Welfare veteran, but, but this is your, your highest profile task today. Tell us what you're up to. So I'm doing a challenge called Entry to Ascot with a cheeky Cheltenham cheat. I started Cheltenham week and I'm going to end this Saturday, 18th of June. Um, it's 194 miles swimming, cycling and running. And I only have one mile left. But the bad thing is today I'm going to really like talk to my parents with clarinets and ukuleles. And then I do a 5k cycle. I mean, sorry, I mean run. And then my mum won't let me count it. So I have to go the dogs to do the one mile run <laughs> so, so you've only got the one mile left it sounds as though you've got so much energy you want to do more 194 miles isn't enough for you no so tell us what gave you the idea and why you want to help racing welfare okay so last time i did um 20 21 meters um 20 times well it was 21 times because people are so generous so i thought i had to do something really so much harder so then obviously with the help of my mum we came up with this challenge and it just formed i guess 
Um, I've raised about £12,500 for Racing Welfare, and this time £3,600. Wow, that's an incredible amount of money. And just tell me a little bit about your, your love of racing and, and why you wanted to, to help out. Well, really, I went to my first race when I was in my car seat, and my parents have always owned half or a quarter of a horse, so I've always been going to the races. And when I was at Newcastle, I met Dawn, and she told me all about racing welfare, and mainly it helps people, and let's help like anyone in the racing industry. So it's just an amazing amazing charity so i thought if i could raise some money it would just help a lot you've done amazing things for her you've been such an inspiration to everyone and um i'm in awe of what you've done 194 miles of running cycling and swimming it sounds absolutely exhausting but you sound as fresh as paint now if we want to still sponsor you and add to your 12 and a half grand that you've already raised for, for racing welfare how do we do that just giving um you can donate there at mary sacray and on twitter it's running for rw um, freya thanks so much for chatting to me this morning uh, best of luck can't wait to see you tomorrow see you tomorrow all right thanks to all my guests on a busy show today uh, lydia is still with me and lydia before i get your tip for the day or the weekend or whenever uh, your thoughts on the platinum jubilee tomorrow what a race I'm really looking forward to this. I think it should, it, it's going to be an absolutely fantastic uh, banner race and uh, it's going to be, it's just going to be so good. Um, I mean, Home Affairs, it's clearly extremely exciting for, for Chris Waller and James McDonald after um, such a fantastic performance from Nature Strip earlier in the week in the King Stand. I'm excited to see what Home Affairs can do. But we've got some really interesting horses as well. Um, uh, we've got Highfield Princess, who's a horse I really love. Um, and she is just showing herself to be at another level again now as a five-year-old. John Quinn, her trainer, improved her all the way through last season. Uh, and now she looks as though she might be even more effective over six furlongs. We've got Umkultham, who might be on a on a, a fast upward pr progress for, for Richard Fahey. There's also Campanelli for, for Wesley Ward, who obviously won the Commonwealth Cup last year um, in the um, in the in the stewards' room, when uh, the horse that we opposes here, um, Dragon um, Force, is was was Dragon Symbol rather was, was demoted. Yeah, got there in the end. And he hasn't gone on, uh, but Campanelli looks as though as though she has. So I'm I'm really I'm really interested in in what what is gonna gonna happen there. Where where are you feeling? I got quite a strong feeling for Highfield Princess and not just because of my loyalty to the stable I think she could run really well I know they'd prefer a drop of rain but you've got to say Chris Dickles has done a great job this week because they're not really threatening the track records and the ground has been drying and drying and drying and drying and drying and nobody's been complaining about overwatering or a massive track bias so I think, um, I think it's great I agree with you I think it's great yeah, we should go yeah, in yeah well, yet I suppose there's two. There, there are at the time of talking two two days to complain about yet, and that the threat of thunderstorms. I, you know, I, I I get that, but so far it's been proper summer ground racing, and I've really enjoyed it. We should throw in last year's Jersey Stakes winner, Creative Force, and mm. we should also throw in the multiple Group One winning Alcohol Free. I mean, it's, cool. it's well, this, that is interesting. That is interesting because Balding said earlier in the season Jubilee. Spoke to him 10 days ago. I think we're going to go Duke of Cambridge. She must have done a decent bit of work because they've yeah. gone back to the Jubilee idea, which is a much tougher spot. 
Yeah, but also I think it, it resolves the issue of, of pulling hard and they can just allow that to she, allow her to, to run through the race. I can, I can see why they've gone in, in this direction. It might, it might very much suit her. It's, it's, a, it's a superb renewal of the Platinum Jubilee and it is fabulous to see. I've really enjoyed this year's Royal Ascot. The, it's, it's great to have the international players back in such number, having a huge impact. I was so pleased when Nature Strip won the, won the King's Stand with that superbly dominant performance because you want connections who are brave enough and positive enough to travel across the across the planet to come to a meeting as fiercely competitive this in entirely different surroundings and be able to come away with it with a success i think that it can only be of benefit for the future of the sport globally but also in particular the, the, the future of, of british racing and the strength and the attraction of it all right what have you got to give me some cheer this week from a punting perspective because as we speak now I'm kind of one for 21 and that was a sixes on shot. And I'm feeling pretty, I'm feeling about as down on my luck as Frankie Dottori, to be honest. Uh, Especially having a second in the Hunt Cup at 40 to one. Oh, ouch, ouch. Mm. Um, I've, I've hit the crossbar at, um, uh, fewer times than I, than I would, I would like. Um, I had, you know, a magical lagoon was the one up, there's been the one upside for me so far this week. Um, so, um, I, I'm looking at the Golden Gates handicap um, uh, tomorrow, Saturday, uh, the 18th of June at 5.35. And I'm very interested in Phantom Flight for James Horton. He is a, a young trainer who used to be assistant to Sir Michael Starrett. He's really hit the headlines hard with his first season in training for John and Jess um, Dance. Uh, Phantom Flight is going to be running in their colours in the Golden Gates handicap, which is the 10 furlong three-year-old handicap. And I think he is going to improve markedly but for a step up by a couple of furlongs in trip, he might even stay a little bit further. I think he did well to win at Haydock. And he is my idea of the winner of the Golden Gates. That's the 5.35 on Saturday, the 18th of June. Superb, Lydia. Thank you so much. That was Friday, June the 17th. Uh, we will see you again uh, tomorrow and after the weekend. Do enjoy the last couple of days of Royal Ascot. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association, and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Mm-hmm.